Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hi, Chris. Good afternoon. Good to talk again. Hope all is good in Canada. Agenda today, US inflation numbers have had a significant market reaction. This release is important in the context of the Federal Reserve's meeting, which is taking place today and tomorrow, and we get an interest rate decision there on Wednesday evening, US time. And of course, on Thursday, we have the European Central Bank meeting and the Bank of England. You want to talk a little bit about some comments that came in from readers onto our Substack site over the last few days, the UK strike situation and the role that Rishi Shunak is playing in the UK economy as something we should discuss. A lot of 2023 outlook pieces starting to emerge, as is always the case this time of the year. So let's have a brief conversation about that. And I guess over the next two or three weeks, um, there will be a lot more of those. So there'd be a lot more to say. But just let's just take a look at what the general theme is at the moment. Here in Ireland, yesterday, we had the Industrial Development Authority publishing its year-end results for 2022. I want to get into some of the details just to show how well the foreign direct investment part of the equation is playing out at the moment. We've got some data from the International Monetary Fund on global debt, and that ties into um, stuff the Bank for International Settlements has been saying about missing debt in the data over the last few weeks. And finally, um, just to update on what's happening on Ukraine 
and indeed at a global geopolitical level. So, Chris, the US inflation number today came in at 7.1% against market expectations of 7.3%. Further evidence that the inflation situation is gradually moderating. The markets have reacted positively to that. The dollar has weakened. And that seems to be the case every time we get positive inflation data out of the States, the dollar tends to weaken. Um, I guess that's largely the markets because the markets are saying that interest rates will not have to rise by as much as previously believed. And I think the consensus at the moment is that the Federal Reserve will deliver a half percent increase tomorrow night, a step down from the jumbo rate increases of 75 basis points that we've seen over the last number of meetings. So it's good as we approach the end of the year to see a gradual easing of inflation pressures. Yeah, I'm seeing lots of comments today saying that inflation has peaked in the United States. That may well be true. I don't know. I think there's a good chance that it will be true. As we've discussed many times on this pod, we always make probabilistic forecasts rather than expressing unwarranted certainty. And I think there's a good chance that US inflation has peaked. One of the reasons for being cautious about it is just how badly wrong we got inflation this time last year, looking one year ahead. The second reason is that there may well be another shock, another surprise. We don't know the future of energy prices in particular. So far, so good is the story there. One of the amazing things about this year has been, if you look back at what people were saying this time last year, uh, if you'd said, and nobody did, that the oil market, the price of crude oil would go up and down a lot, and, and that OPEC would set a $100 target for its uh, output of oil, and then you would have said that the, the oil price, as we speak today, we're not at the end of the year, but we're getting closer And if today's price persists until the end of the year, you'll have ended up with a flat year for the oil price. A, nobody forecast that, and everybody would have been astonished, given the war in Ukraine, given what OPEC have done, um, to see a flat oil price. Again, a cautionary tale, but most people seem to be expecting energy prices to tick up again. So, We'll take take that with with a pinch of salt. The U.S. inflation numbers are really, really important in many ways, particularly for the short-term direction of markets. They will determine everything because they will determine the, the course of U.S. and really, therefore, everybody else's interest rates. And everything depends on interest rates, particularly over the short term. There's lots of reasons why inflation will fall over the next while. Now, oil price has got a big part of that. Petrol prices now um, have Joe Biden tweeting about how low they are relative to where they were back in the summer and how they're now lower than when before, just before the Ukraine war started. So nothing much has happened to petrol prices, not uncoincidentally like, like the oil price. There's a technical reason why inflation should continue to fall next year, and that's to do with the way they measure housing costs in US inflation numbers. And they were actually slightly disappointing today. But there's every reason to expect the housing component of US inflation to weaken next year and to contribute, finally, to falls in US inflation. It's one of the things that's been pushing US inflation up this year. A lot of that is to do with rents and the way they calculate rents in the CPI is technical. It's very nerdy. And that's still going up. 
at a time when the actual rents paid by people in the US housing market are going down as the US housing market weakens. And that's a general point about housing markets around the world, particularly in places like Canada, Australia and the UK, where each different piece of data about UK house prices suggests that we have in Britain a very, very weak housing market. Olivier Blanchard is the chief economist of the IMF, and he concurs, he agrees with the forecasts that US inflation will fall further over the next while, partly because of that housing component, partly because the effects of high energy prices are now starting to wash through. They went up, but they didn't go up again, if you know what I mean. That means that once you get 12 months ahead of an energy price increase, if they stayed flat or indeed gone down, then the effect washes out or even reverses. The problem Blanchard sees is that once all of those effects have washed through, he thinks that US inflation could settle at around the 4 to 5% level rather than the 2-ish percent that the Fed is targeting. And therefore, he sees the need for the Fed to do more. And that's a prelude, I suppose, to what's going to happen tomorrow, that 50 basis point increase that you you mentioned. It really is about the labour market now in, in the States and what's going to happen to wages. And that core inflation that Blanchard is worried about is stemming from the labour market, from what's happening to wages. So that's something we're, we're going to need to keep a very close eye on. So, that, so that's it, really. Inflation to fall further. I suspect the market reaction to it, which initially at least was very positive in both equities went up and bond deals, long-term interest rates went down. Initially, one whole interest rate hike that was in the market for next year has been taken out. Um, That will change, probably has done while I've been speaking. But that reaction to a slightly weaker than expected US inflation number of saying there's going to be one less rate hike in the US next year than we previously thought, and it shows you just how sensitive the markets are to, to this number and indeed that they will continue to do so. So I I don't don't think there's much more to say about that, Jim, which is that it's good news, um, but we need to be only cautiously optimistic that we're through the worst. Yes, Chris, and it it seems pretty clear that the Ukraine war situation is going to continue to reverberate during 2023. Uh, Zelensky has just appealed to G7 leaders for modern tanks and long-range missiles, And the G7 has promised to meet Ukraine's urgent requirements. So that is indicative of a war situation that's not going to end anytime soon. Putin has cancelled his year-end news conference. Uh, That is a conference where he's traditionally questioned by domestic and international media. That ain't going to happen this time, which I guess is indicative of the pressure he's under at the moment with this ongoing war. But um, it seems very clear that this war will continue to have a huge impact on everything during 2023. And unfortunately, it does look like something that's going to rumble on and on. And if you superimpose that situation with the cold snap that Europe particularly is experiencing at the moment, pretty intense cold out there, including here in Ireland, and I know in the UK, huge weather disruption. So Against that sort of backdrop, um, you would be concerned. Well, at least I would be concerned about energy prices over the coming months. So I don't think it's possible to call the all clear at this stage. How do you read the Ukraine situation at the moment? It's very messy, Jim. There's lots of pieces being written about paths to peace 
or a ceasefire. Or in the case of a very interesting article in the FT, I think it was yesterday, about an armistice along the lines of the Korean armistice in the 1950s. Because uh, that wasn't uh, an, a declaration of the end of the war. It was just that the two sides agreed to stop fighting. The war, in theoretical terms at least, continued for a very long time. I'm not sure that actually they've ever declared that Korean war to be over. If they have, it's a, it's a very recent phenomenon. Um, and the problem people have is seeing their, seeing that path to peace. What could it possibly involve? Because there's a fundamental stumbling block, which is that if you have negotiations between Ukraine and Russia, the first fundamental roadblock is that Ukraine's stated position is that it wants Russia out of all of Ukraine, including Crimea, which it took in 2014. And that would, on the face of it at least, appear to be a red line for the Russians. So the chances of those negotiating aims being met, the Ukrainian negotiating aims being met, seem to be pretty remote. The second fundamental block is that any agreement, whatever it takes, whether Russia agrees to withdraw, whether there's a redrawing of the border, whatever it might be, is what is Putin's signature worth? Given that he has abrogated all previous treaties that he signed with respect to Ukraine, um, in an ironic twist, if you can look back at previous agreements and see that Russia has been uh, a guarantor of Ukrainian security. And uh, as part of those guarantees, Ukraine gave up an awful lot of its weapons, um, in particular nuclear weapons, because at the time, for a while, it was the, th- the country with the third largest stock of nuclear weapons in the world. It gave them all to Russia. And again, in an ironic, savage twist, really, they've discovered that a lot of those Soviet era, but manufactured in Ukraine and stored in Ukraine for a while, missiles have actually been fired by Russia. The ones that were given back by Ukraine to Russia, manufactured in Ukraine, as I said, Russia has been firing them at Ukraine, not with nuclear tips on them, of course, not with nuclear uh, explosives in them. They've been putting dummy explosives in them. And these things, of course, cause some damage when they land, but they don't have any explosive capacity because, as I say, they have dummy warheads. But nevertheless, if you have a missile landing on your house or your office or your factory, um, it will cause damage. The thing has fuel. The the kinetic energy of the impact will cause damage. But the bigger thing that it does is that it acts as a decoy to Ukrainian um, anti-missile defenses. So, So what's been happening is that they've been firing these dummy missiles all over the place, all over Ukraine. Ukraine's air defenses go up looking for these missiles and shoot some of them down, a lot of them by all accounts. But then about half an hour later, the real missile attack starts. And with the Ukraine's air defenses, anti-missile defenses preoccupied with this first wave, too many of the second wave have been getting through. There's all, all kinds of fascinating stuff, you know, really brutal stuff like that happening at the moment. But you talked about the geopolitics and the some of the things that have been happening underneath the surface that really don't don't get enough attention, I think, warrant um, a lot more focus than they're, they're getting. And in particular, as an example of what I'm talking about, I think Germany's ability to backtrack, to change its mind on key policy statements with regard to Ukraine warrants an awful lot of attention. You might remember that in the immediate aftermath of the invasion, uh, the Chancellor, 
uh, Olaf Scholz promised a swift expansion of the defence budget to at least 2% of GDP. It was called a Zeitenwender, I think, in my poor German pronunciation there, which means sea change in their defence spending. We've got reports only in the last few days that the government's chief spokesperson, uh, Germany's chief spokesperson, has stated that the target will be missed both this year and next. But he has a cautious expectation, and that's a quote, that it might be met by 2025. And only yesterday, Schultz stated that economic cooperation between Germany and Russia might start as soon as Russia ends its war. But he said previously that the West will not ease sanctions unless Russia withdraws from Ukraine and reaches a peace deal with Kyiv. We had reports yesterday that the conservative head of the German state of Saxony said that going forever without Russian gas would be, and I quote, historically ignorant and politically wrong. So Germany speaks really often out of both sides of its mouth. And I think that we could rightly, or Ukraine could rightly demand a wee bit more consistency from them. As you say, Kyiv is not changing its mind. Zelensky presented a three-part or three-step peace proposal to the uh, virtual G7 that met yesterday. The three things were very simple. He wants more weapons, he wants more money, and he wants the start of Russian withdrawal by Christmas. And so that's a very consistent peace plan. So, yeah, there's there's tons going on that... Um, I hope that our attention doesn't wander from Ukraine because all of these things and much more deserve far, far more attention, Jim. I totally agree and think it's something we will be returning to many times over the coming months. On another global geopolitical note, uh, I read where the Indian and Chinese troops suffered minor injuries in a clash over other disputed territories in the eastern Himalayas yesterday. This region is under Indian administration, but Beijing claims ownership so that the whole relationship of china with the rest of the world is you know it's it's an ongoing story that's going to dominate i think a lot over the coming decades and you'd have to think that the role of china in the emerging world will be the biggest geo global geopolitical issue over the coming years chris if i can come back to um Irish news. The Irish Industrial Development Authority yesterday, that is the body, the state body responsible for attracting foreign direct investment into the country. It has had an incredibly strong and impressive track record over recent years in attracting investments and creating jobs. The latest jobs data show that at the end of October, it's not quite to year end. 301,475 people were employed by companies that the IDA supports. Um, that's up 9% on what was a record level of employment at the end of last year. Um, during the year, they created over 32,000 gross new jobs. And we always, of course, get ongoing news about jobs being lost in various multinational companies around the economy. Um, and that those job losses total around 8,000 this year. So the net job increase was just over 24,000. 242 investments were won. 103 of those investments were for, from companies that were not here before. And of course, North America continues to be by far the most significant source destination for those investments. Um, 167 of the investments came from North America, 54 came from Europe, and 21 came from what we call growth markets. 
and over 52% of the jobs created have been outside of Dublin. And a few other, um, I think, interesting nuggets that came out of the NGO release was that companies supported by the IDA paid 19.6 billion in wages last year into the economy. And they engaged in just over 30 billion in expenditure on goods services in the economy. And they exported 315 and a half billion worth of goods and services. Um, I've spoken many times over the last couple of years about the incredibly strong anchor that foreign direct investment continues to provide for the Irish economy. Um, indeed, during COVID, the FDI sector continued to expand very strongly with the chemical and pharmaceutical sector performing really strongly and continuing to perform really strongly. So it's definitely a very, very positive story from the IDA at the moment. And in the press conference yesterday, the IDA um, was saying that the pipeline for the first half of next year is still strong. A lot of commitments made, uh, but they would expect the second half of next year to become more challenging. And given the global economic backdrop, um, it's hard to argue with that at this juncture. Uh, but having said that, you know, it's it's an incredibly positive story. And um, it just shows you how successful the IDA is in attracting this investment into the economy. But secondly, um, it just says something about Ireland as an attractive location for those companies to invest in. Um, I definitely think Brexit has helped us because being the only native English-speaking country left in the European Union, with the exception of Malta, uh, that definitely makes us more attractive for North American companies. And of course, all of this inward investment has continued to grow strongly, despite the fact that over the last couple of years, we've seen um, preliminary agreement on a global corporation tax deal that is deemed to eventually make Ireland a less attractive location for foreign direct investment. And, and everybody knows that this is happening. Um, we're not quite sure yet exactly how it lands, but we know it's happening. We know that Ireland's relative attractiveness for foreign direct investment will be damaged somewhat by this global tax deal in a sense that the if the minimum global corporation tax rate of 15% is introduced, that means the Irish corporation tax rate will have to go from 12.5 to 15. Uh, and that, in an international context, is still a very low rate of taxation, but it does represent some deterioration. But I think the, the, the more telling threat for Ireland is the fact that this global corporation tax deal is also intended to ensure that companies pay more tax in the jurisdiction where they sell goods and services rather than the jurisdiction where the balance sheet actually resides. So, um, and, and, you know, the consensus would be that that will do more damage to Ireland than the 12.5% to 15% corporation tax rate change. But despite, there's none of this news. And despite all of that, um, multinational companies continue to see Ireland as a good place in which to invest um, and that that is an incredibly positive indictment of what's happening in this country at the moment and of course the regional spread of these jobs is still very very good um, multinationals just provide incredible levels of employment all over the economy and of course the IDA estimates that for every one job supported by one of its client companies 
roughly 0.8% of a job is supported in the rest of the economy. So um, as long as this FDI model continues to perform as strongly as it is performing at the moment, um, you'd have to be pretty upbeat about Ireland's prospects in an incredibly challenging global economic environment in 2023. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, that environment is challenging, as you say, Jim. And one of the challenges that Ireland and the world economy faces is the consensus view in all those 2023 outlook pieces that we referenced earlier on is that there is going to be a recession in the United States. That appears to be an overwhelming consensus. It hasn't happened yet. It's not in the numbers yet. But that's what people seem to expect. Different people expect very different recessions. Um, some mild, some severe, some nothing much at all, uh, just a very flat year. One, one prominent analyst expects what's called rolling recessions, which takes me back to my youth, actually, because that was a phrase that was used about the US economy in the 1980s, in which recession uh, rolled around the United States in a regional sense. The rolling recession term is being used now because of the way in which it's expected to hit certain sectors, most obviously now manufacturing uh, and tech. And one or two others are the ones being hit, but others are doing reasonably well. And some analysts are thinking that it will, the recession will roll out of one sector and into another and keep the year pretty flat overall. So nobody really knows what the US economy is going to do next year, Jim. But if it is a recession, then that's not good news for Ireland, because that obviously means companies spend less money, have less money to spend. And so that flow from the United States into Ireland might be expected to have a headwind at the very least. I'm not suggesting it could be catastrophic or anything like that. But the the tailwind of big domestic growth in the US, big growth in the world economy, the post-pandemic rebound and all that kind of stuff, that does seem to be dissipating. If I might just spend two minutes, Jim, talking about some of the comments that our readers have left on our website and on Apple Podcasts in particular, the review section of Apple Podcasts. The reason why I mention this is, A, because I know I talked about it before, so I won't do it for very long now. I just wanted to thank people for leaving their reviews. I did ask them to do that, and quite a few did. So thanks a million. It really, really does help us. So please keep it coming. Leave a review wherever you can. Apple Podcast is probably the best one, but Spotify, I think, also have a, a comment section. We get good, bad and indifferent pod, um, comments about the pod. Um, mostly good. 
Um, I would say that, wouldn't wouldn't I? But anybody can go and read them if they want to. They're all there. So I'll just pick one or two, just uh, because it's, some of them are amusing, some of them are interesting, from somebody called Sir Chris P. O- Onions. It's always interesting the anonymous names that uh, people adopt for themselves. People very rarely leave comments in their own name. People very rarely do anything in their own name on social media these days. It's a curious thing. But this Sir Onions suggested it's a great podcast. My favourite was the one on Brexit with Professor Chris Gray. Thanks very much for that. That podcast was great. And if anybody hasn't listened to it and is interested in Brexit, please take a listen because it, it, he, Chris is a fantastic guy. This Mr. Onions used to, goes on to say, good old Jim is a tad right wing for me, but Chris will set him straight eventually, I reckon. What do you think about that one, Jim? <laughs> Jesus, I have a letter here in my desk I received recently from somebody here in Dublin uh, who did actually sign his name, accusing me of being a left wing reactionary. <laughs> I guess that's a contradiction people... in terms of it. <laughs> it is indeed. People will hear what they want to hear, Chris. I never tie myself into an ideological position, to be honest. Um, I have always believed that every situation, every challenge should be judged on its own merits, not through the prism of some ideological straitjacket. I would describe myself basically as being pretty centrist, but I would have right wing views on some issues. I'd have left wing views on other issues, but generally I tend to gravitate um, around the center. Um, well, so, said. well said. You know, can I read out that, another one? Yeah, you can indeed. So this is from somebody called AOC82. Who knows? A little too pro Fine Gael for my liking. Let's be honest, the government could do a lot better on rents and housing, among other areas. The podcast would benefit from moving away from the Brexit Sinn Féin bashing to, to maybe something more interesting. Practical ad- financial advice around savings would be welcome. Now, one of the things I'd say immediately about that is that we can't give investment advice. Um, we're not authorised, we're not regulated, and we get ourselves into an awful lot of trouble if we gave investing advice. And we're always very careful not to do that. We say what we think about markets in very general terms. We are allowed to do that. But that's it. This is not an investing advice agony aunt podcast. So sorry about that. But um, even if we wanted to do it, which I suspect we don't, we can't. But Jim, um, the bit about being too pro Fine Gael, what do you think about that one? Funny enough, um, yeah, I've been accused of that in the past. Um, I am not and never have been a member of a political party. Okay. Um, this year, I spoke at the Fianna Fáil Ardesh as a guest speaker on a budget discussion. Um, I've spoken at Green Party events. I've spoken at Fianna Gael events. Um, I, I guess I think the only party that has never asked me to do anything well would be those like People Before Profit. Well, sorry, actually, I have done an event in Dunleary for Richard Boyd Barrett. Um, I've debated an issue with him and I've debated with the Socialist Party. Uh, the only party I've never had any thing to do with in a formal way would be Sinn Féin. Um, I go back to my previous answer, Chris. Um, I refuse to be straightjacketed by some political ideology. Fine Gael, for me, in theory, is a political party that's slightly right of centre, slightly in theory on economic issues, slightly left of centre on social issues. And that sort of fits in reasonably well with my belief system. But if you look at the sorts of policies that Fine Gael have actually delivered 
you know, in many ways, it's hard to describe him as actually being slightly right of centre. And in fact, I would regard Fine Gael as pretty much a left-wing party economically at this juncture. If you look at the way in which public expenditure has been expanded over the period since Fine Gael has been in government since 2011, um, it has been quite extraordinary. And we saw another example. If you look at the budget that was delivered on September 27th, the massive spending package in there directed towards huge social welfare increases, some reductions in the tax burden. I certainly wouldn't describe that as a right-wing Fine Gael uh, type policy. So, it is um, extraordinary I, how I, Fine Gael have yeah. acquired this right-wing label. As, as a Brit who is more used to British conventions around right and left, I'm always intrigued by how different countries um, label their politicians in this way and, and how different countries have very different meanings attached to the labels left and right. There is no such thing as left and right in Irish politics, as far as I can tell, not in a meaningful way, until Sinn Féin get into government, of course, and they are very old. I, I always find it extraordinary the way people come in and throw these sort of political, ideologically based um, names at you. Um, as I say, and I repeat again, I like to try and judge every situation on its own merits. I refuse to be put into the straitjacket yeah. of some political ideology. Uh, but people always I, want to, to put people into boxes. In, they, into do, labels. they do, they do indeed. You know, we, we, we're astrologers at heart and there are only 12 types of people, Cancerians, Librans and all the rest of it. Management consultants do it to businesses all the time, two by two matrices of attributes. And the world is a very complex place and it's a very human and understandable tendency to try and put people into boxes, but often it's square pegs into round holes. I just read out somebody complaining about our Sinn Féin bashing. There's another one um, on Apple reviews uh, from Australia, from some person called Musso Rich in Australia, came in in the last few days. Listen attentively in Australia, but am from Ireland. Jim and Chris offer great insights into economics, politics, politics and current affairs in concise, eloquent and easy to understand language. Here's the good bit. Please keep highlighting how Sinn Féin's policies are destined to cause problems if they do indeed get into power. So you can't please all the people all the time. That's two reviews recently in one having a go at us because we always have a go at the Shinners and another saying keep it up. Um, of course, I don't know what you think, Jim, I won't put words into your mouth, but I will continue to say what I think about Sinn Féin. I'll say what I think about Rishi Sunak. I'll say what I think about um, American politics. That's what this podcast is in part for. And one of the reasons why I think we both go on a bit about Sinn Féin relative to some of the other political parties that we do talk about and often criticise is that the Irish media basically, with honourable exceptions, lets them get away with it. Um, I've long thought that the state broadcaster is essentially a PR firm for Sinn Féin, um, again, with honourable exceptions, and that comment will no doubt upset lots of people. But there are large sections of the Irish media that are far, far too soft on, on the Shinners, in my opinion. And so I think that we're doing a public service by filling <laughs> that gap. I don't know Chris, what you think. Chris, I, I, I would say a couple of things. One is that, um, you know, Labour, the Greens, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael have been involved in Irish government over recent years. So we have a fair idea of what those parties are good at and are not good at in government. 
Sinn Féin has never been in government. Um, there's a strong chance, not a certainty, but there's a strong possibility Sinn Féin could be part of a government here from 2025 onwards. So I think it's absolutely essential to analyse the economic policies of Sinn Féin because the party has not been in government before. Um, over the last uh, number of years, we've seen Labour, the Green Party, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael in government. We know what they're all about. We know what those parties are good at. We know what those parties are not good at uh, because they've been in government. Whereas in, with Sinn Féin, they have not been in government. So I think for a party that could well be part of an ex-government here, it's really, really important to understand what that party is all about. And I can assure all listeners and critics and others, um, I can assure that over the coming couple of years, I will certainly be analysing every economic statement from Sinn Féin just to see what the party's economic policy is all about. Uh, there may be policies in there I agree with. There may be policies I disagree with. Uh, but I certainly will not give up on um, critically analysing what the party is all about. And of course, we will be doing the other parties as well, particularly in the run up to that general election. We're not biased, but we certainly lean in one direction, shall we say. Yeah, and I mean, I, I have been upfront in my criticism of government over its abject failure to address the housing situation, for example. Day by day, month by month, we see the extent of that problem continuing to escalate. We continue to see what I would regard as a pretty impotent response from government. And I can never understand it because to me, it is the biggest economic social and political issue facing this country and if the government really threw all of its resources at housing in the way that it did at the COVID crisis for example um, I think the political payback for that those parties if they managed to alleviate the problem would be absolutely phenomenal so I, I have been critical of government you know yeah. so um, I wouldn't regard myself as being biased to the least extent so one obvious question that arises from that that we can't answer today because we are running out of time very rapidly is just why when it's so obvious that this problem is real that it needs tackling just why those resources haven't been thrown at it in the way that you suggest and I think that should be a topic probably for, for a report that we should write and certainly something we should talk about at length on this pod. So Jim we haven't got through all of our agenda as usual I'm not going to um talk about any of the other things particularly the UK and Rishi Sunak that I was going to mention I'll leave that to the next pod if, if, have you got anything else you want to say today yeah just a couple of parting comments one is that one, one thing that I have always be, well I believe for quite some time that needs to happen with housing is that the responsibility needs to be given to the department of the Taoiseach because I think only when it lands on the Taoiseach's desk is it likely to get the sort of urgent attention that it desires. Second point I would make, Chris, is that you're being quite charitable. I went in looking at some of the feedback on the podcasts on Apple, and uh, there was one comment from a guy some time back saying that um, during the Celtic Tiger years, etc., that the phenomenon of the celebrity economist emerged. And, you know, he mentioned how David McWilliams went on to produce a lot of TV and radio shows and that I, Jim Power, never had the charisma to do likewise. 
So I leave it there. Oh, were your were, were your feelings hurt, mate? Uh, no, Chris. Okay. I never set myself up as having charisma. I didn't okay? think so. I didn't think so. I think people could call us, uh, could label us with, in lots of different ways. Charismatic. I'll leave that to our audience. Good to talk, Jim. Speak to you next time. Great, Chris. Mind yourself. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.